The standards are upheld by you. Lead by example. Promote what you permit. You are not a leader in the crowd, any more lost in waiting for direction. Promotion of fitness, regulations, pride, and team building are essential. You are the leader. Do not rest on that. Leaders get put on a pedestal and quit developing. Leaders are readers. Stay current, stay hungry, stay educated. Leadership by email is not a style. Do the right thing even if it hurts. Be the true badass leader and let the wake of your mentoring, leadership, and conduct speak for itself. Welcome to the charge. Um, actually, I joined. Joining the Navy was my dream since I was a kid. Um, my dream was to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, the, a lot of that stream from Hollywood and so on and so forth. But um, the ultimate reason for joining the Navy uh, was honestly patriotism. I love my country. Um, I love what our country was was founded upon, uh, and what the you know the, the Constitution means to me, and and so on and so forth. Um, I don't agree necessarily agree with what happened in the past and the times, but those were the times at that time. Um, but that's why I joined was to defend my flag, to defend my country. Uh, another reason was uh, growing up in a single household with just my mother and my little sister was to defend them, was to, to kind of be a, not necessarily a voice, but I guess to be a hero. I share the same sentiment you have. I joined because of the GI Joe figures, the Navy SEALs and the Spec Op Rangers that you see on TV all the time. I thought I joined because I relate to that because those are like, to me, the Spartan warriors back in the time, right? Those guys are the, the tip of the spear, those are the guys that are out there on the front front lines, and I was always enamored with this giant figure bigger than myself. Somebody that was out there, like, oh, carrying the guns and on the battlefield, and I thought, man, that's what I want to do, right? I think I think that 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 level or or that image, and I don't want to say image of masculinity, but that image of protector, right? Yeah. Stems, you know, really connected with a lot of us who have that characteristics that we feel the need to protect. We feel the need to step in when other people can't. You know, I mean, I'm five, six growing up. I was a little bitty guy. You know, I was getting bullied all the time. But at the same time, I was never afraid to stand up to a boy that was bullying somebody else. Uh, I didn't really usually ended up getting the hard end of the stick or shoved in my locker or whatever. But I just you felt the drive and the need to defend and protect people that couldn't. Um, and I think we, we, we adopted that a lot from the image of, again, I'm not going to say masculinity, but just the image that those people, those, those action figures, you know, we watched wrestling and we see what they were doing. So we adopted that as that's how I can be a better protector and defender. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so you come from the South. You're from Pensacola area, right? Uh, well, that's so I tell this to everybody. I was born in Georgia, uh, raised in Alabama, roll tide. And uh, I grew up in Florida yeah. around Navarro. I graduated from Navarro High School. Yeah. I, I always, patriotism goes throughout the nation, right? Everybody has it. And I always feel yeah. like the oh. Southern and Midwestern states. Yeah. Like are emboldened by it, right? And I don't know why that's different because 
there's, I know tons of great guys and girls that come from New York and California and Washington, but it seems like the Southern states, we get a lot of recruits from like Texas, a lot from Alabama, a lot from Georgia. I don't know if it's this population density of the South, but it seems like that seems to be a big area where people come from. I would just, I wouldn't think it'd be population density. I think it's just because of our upbringing. You know, the South is still very old school on, on being a Southern gentleman, hospitality, um, of that sense. You know, I, I didn't have a, a father growing up. My grandfather, you know, raised me or whatever, but it was, it was about, you know, when another man walks into the room, stand up to shake their hand. It's all about that Southern gentleman. Hold the door open for a woman. Open the door for a woman. And it's not saying she's not capable of it, but it's just that's how we're instilled. We're instilled on in the South. And I'm not saying it's not anywhere else in the States, but I, I can speak for a fact in the South that we're taught hard work and labor pays off. You know what I mean? You earn with, you know, you got to earn your keep. You got to do your part. Uh, you got to tribute to society. And I, I think it's just the fact that those are the morals and principles that are instilled on us in the South to treat every person with respect. You know what I mean? Treat everyone as you want to be treated. And I'm not trying to make this about religion, but in the South, we're, you know, still huge on, we raise our kids on the Bible and what the Bible stands for. Whether you believe in the Bible or not, I haven't seen anything bad in the Bible to raise kids on. You know, it teaches morals and principles. Treat every man with respect, love your wife, love your neighbor. You know what I mean? Those are all great morals and principles, whether you believe in that or not. Um, and that's just how we're raised. And I think we, we develop a lot of our patriotism um, from that servitude, right? Yeah. Service to country, service to our fellow man. Yeah. I think derives more so from the South than necessarily uh, California or, or wherever else. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you raised in the South, joined the Navy. What's your first duty station? Uh, first duty station was the USS Kitty Hawk out of Yakuska, Japan. Wow. Like, and that was a, that's not a nuclear reactor uh, carrier at no, the time, No, that right? was a conventional carrier. Yeah, and so that, for the people that don't understand, that's a carrier that operate off coal, right? Am I, am I right? Well, basically gas and oil, like yeah. a car would. We didn't yeah. have nuclear power. And so all of our subs today are all nuclear-powered submarines that, or submarines, carriers that can go out for years and years and years. But this, the Kitty Hawk was, which was coined the Shitty Hawk. It was like the last of the old breed when it came to that, yeah. that classic area. We used to call it uh, Correctional Vessel 63 <laughs> because it, it seemed like everybody that went to that ship was the ones that went to, to, to the judge and the old man said, you got two options, either prison or join the military. And those that decided on the Navy got shipped out to the Kitty Hawk. So we, we did. We always called it Correctional Vessel 63. And I've got a patch somewhere where we had that put on. Um, but I, I will say, uh, yeah, people call it the shitty kitty. We called it shitty kitty at the time, but I'll be on the day that I left that ship. Uh, I remember walking out to the, to the aft fantail, the smoking lamp was lit. And I had my, I was checking out. What's, I was, what's a smoking lamp? Smoking lamp is when it's lit and saying, Hey, you can smoke at this time. So you can't, it. so what, for people to understand, we can't just smoke a cigarette. No, no, smoking lamp's got to be lit in order for you to smoke. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not a democracy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you do what you're told when you're told, Hey, you can smoke now. Okay. I'm going to go smoke. <laughs> but I remember I was checking out. Uh, 
I was a third class at the time, and I remember going to the Fantel. I was in my utilities. Utility, you know, back then was the blue top, and it was basically the service, you know, the gas station servicemen. You look like a gas station tech. Yeah, exactly, 100%. Um, but I remember going out there, and I lit up my last cigarette, and I cried. Like, I did. I was, I was sad to leave that ship, thinking about all the friends that I have made, all the places that I've gone, the experiences I had had on that ship, the friends that I had lost uh, on that ship uh, just kind of hit you all at once. And a lot of that, a lot of those times you don't, you don't really think about until it's time to leave. Yeah. You know, we always complain about a duty station or command during that time till it's time to leave. They're like, man, I, I really did have a good yeah. freaking time here. It, it's not an institutionalization. You're not there because it's just because you've just, you've gained a family. Like you're part of something. Yeah. Bigger than yourself. Well, institutionalization, that happens during boot camp. For sure. You know, 100%. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, January, tw- and I'll never forget it to this day, uh, January 29th of 2005, um, we were we were doing workups. We weren't on the point. We were doing workups or whatnot. And we were out, and it was a Thursday. We were getting ready for general quarters. And me and my, my brother were actually in, on the smoke pit, and it was 1830 at night, and they had called over the 1FC, hey, uh, training environment, so on and so forth. I don't remember all the verbatim. Uh, in case of actual casualty, uh, report actual casualty. So everybody was out on the smoke pit because our EXO at the time was anti-smokers, and with even after general quarters that started off in 1900 and went to 2200, he didn't turn on the smoking lamp until three or four hours afterwards. So everybody's out there trying to get them in, like two or three cigarettes at once. There's a line to get oh, in. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, so we're out there smoking, and, and they come over saying that. So me and my brother start walking from the smoke pit down to our work center where we were supposed to be at for general quarters, which was on the ninth deck. I was in the hazmat division, S9. And you hear the a jet land or whatever, and then all of a sudden on the 1MC, which is the ship's basically intercom system, you hear uh, aircraft in the water, man overboard times two. And, and I remember walking to the hangar bay, everybody in the hangar bay kind of stopped and kind of looked at each other because it was out of the normal, right? At, at 1830, general course started at 1900, every time. 1830 started the training environment, and it was kind of something new. And everybody in the hangar bay kind of stopped and was looking at each other, but only for a brief second, and then carried on to go to their, their general quarter station or whatever to prepare. And it was, it was within, it, it seemed like minutes, but probably within seconds, um, we're, we're actually going down the ladder well, and you hear the same thing come over. Uh, aircraft in the water, man overboard times two, mass casualty on the flight deck, actual casualty. Wow. And at that point in time, it just seemed like time stopped. Like, holy shit, this is happening? Can I say shit? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, so get down to uh, where our, our office was on the, the night deck. So we get down there, and they start calling for um, 
anybody who's combat lifesaver, CLS. Well, I was CLS from when I was at uh, BUDS. Um, they start calling for people with O positive blood. They start calling for stretcher bearers. So I was CLS qualified. And um, so I got my stuff up, went up to, they said to report to Hangar Bay 1. Reported to Hangar Bay 1. Uh, didn't know what to expect, what I was going to see. Nervous as shit. Uh, but I didn't hesitate to go at all. We get on the, the, the elevator, get up, and it was just, it was mass chaos. Uh, so in, in total, uh, what had happened was they had rigged the flight deck for an F-18E series, and it was F-series that landed. Well, an F-series weighs 20,000 pounds more than an E-series. Uh, pilot did everything right. He, he caught the third wire. Uh, as people know that are familiar with the flight deck, there's four wires that stretch across. Uh, if a pilot catches the fourth wire, uh, they get a pretty hard time. They always want to go for the one, two, or third wire. He caught the third wire and uh, noticed as he wasn't stopping, he just kind of rolled to the edge and the aircraft tipped over the side and his co-pilot ejected. But what happened was the wire had snapped. If you take a rubber band, stretch it as far as you can, and it breaks off, it comes back and stings you, right? Uh, well, the same thing had happened. That wire had come back. Uh, the starboard side of the wire, the right had, side, right side, had almost completely cut through an entire HS60, the Hilo, uh, and there was a whole crew of crash and salvage crew behind that. That if that Hilo wouldn't have been there, they would no longer be with us. You're talking a wire that's probably. Six inches in diameter. Yeah, it's about the size of a of a Coke can beer can yeah. in length, right? Yeah. But um, the the port side or the left side of the wire had sliced one guy's stomach open. His guts were hanging out. Um, took off another guy's leg. Uh, injured, like I said, in total of six people. But uh, I was. As I was walking the flight, you know, trying to find out, wait, what, how can I be used best? What can I do? Um, it was a chief that told me, I need you to look over the, 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 the flight deck for body parts. Well, lo and behold, I happened to find a foot with a quarter inch of the leg left. Well, I put it in a bag and me and the guy I was with were walking it back and just, just kind of, you weren't thinking at that time what was going on. It was just action training kicked in training kicked in right well come to find out it was a good buddy of mine uh toby corbin and it was his leg so but it's going back to you know checking out the command calling it shitty kitty it's those things that when you're leaving that command you reflect on and think of, of the experiences you had the port calls you had like i said the brothers you've lost uh i can't tell you how many people you know uh wasn't that many but People that just jump over the side of the boat and you never see them again. Yeah, you they know? take their. They have, we have float coats we're supposed to wear, but I mean they'll take them off. Yeah, if they're wanting to commit suicide. Yeah, and they'll just they'll go. Yep, it's pitch black and dark. You're talking. There's no light out there. No. Um, How old were you at the time on this match casualty event? 2005. I was probably 20. Can you imagine? Like 20 years old, man. Like, yeah. You don't even know. You can't even drink yet. 
Here you are picking bodies. Yeah, it depends up. on where you're at in the world, but yeah. yeah. In America, you can't. In America, you can't. Oh, I'm 18. I can I can sacrifice my life for my country, but I can't have a beer. Yeah, but I can pick up body parts off a flight yeah, deck. Yeah, I can right? pick up body parts off a flight deck. So what was your favorite port call on the Kitty Hawk? Whew, man. Uh, let's see. It went to Guam God knows how many times. Uh, I went to Singapore, went to Korea, went to Hong Kong numerous times. Uh, I'd, pr- I'd probably say, other than Singapore, was probably Perth, Australia. Oh, I've heard stories about Australia. It's legendary. So uh, we pulled into Perth, Australia. And if you've never been to Australia, I've been to Sydney and Perth. And the way I describe it to people that haven't been, if you were to take Australia and flip it, Sydney would be like New York City. And Perth would be like the South. Uh, very hospitable, very friendly, very patriotic. We're talking about Perth here. Perth, Australia, okay. yeah. So uh, me and my brother actually took leave for Perth. And we had heard the stories too, right? right. And I always thought people were over-exaggerating. People were full of shit. Like, that doesn't really happen. But buddy, when I tell you that we are pulling into the pier and they are launching tennis balls at the sh- at, I'm on an aircraft carrier, right? 5,500 people. I'd yes. <laughs> they are launching tennis balls with phone numbers. You know what I mean? I was I cannot believe this is real. We we pull up and we were going to be there for five days, four nights. Uh, and me and my brother took leave so we had the entire time. And we weren't ones that liked to stay close to the ship or close to the Navy where all the rigmarole was going on and stuff. We like to keep away from the trouble. But we got a hotel in Scarborough, which is just outside of Fremantle, Australia. Uh, it was four of us. And a prob- we probably paid $75 a piece for our hotel that night. Got to the, we took a cab all the way to the hotel, so we had to pay for the cab ride. Uh, checked in the hotel. Wasn't a fancy hotel. It was right on the beach. And... Uh, we bought a glass of champagne from the lobby. Cheap champagne was nothing expensive. Why? <laughs> or not? Yeah, from the lobby, not Hawaii. No, I'm saying like why? Oh, why? just know? because we're we're you celebrating could. being in Australia, we could. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we get up to the room. Uh, it's myself and, and my brother, and then uh, another or two other of our, our of our buddies with us. And so let me go back. I went to the lobby to get the champagne. When I had come back to the room, uh, I had noticed that the bathroom door was cracked open and I could hear an electric razor. I was the only one who had an electric razor. I happened just to open because I'm like, somebody's using my razor. So I opened the door and there's my brother with his pants down to his ankles standing over the toilet shaving his shit with my razor. Oh, you got to be shitting me. Right? But this is, you know, that's what we did. We were, yeah. bro- you know, whatever. Literally brothers. No, not by blood. Oh, just, okay. Just by service. Okay. Yeah, we were that close. We, he was from Florida. I was from Florida. We both loved fishing, stuff like that. We just immediately. Close enough. Off. Close enough, right? <laughs> so that night, we went to a restaurant, Vivo Vivo, which was in Fremantle. Um, and we're sitting there. And best, if you've never had grilled kangaroo, I'm telling you, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so we got there. We're sitting at the table. Uh, we we all ordered a grilled kangaroo and we ordered a bottle of wine. 
So we're sitting there. We, we take our order. The waitress comes over. And, of course, she had the, the foreign accent, but it was kind of off from Australian accent, right? Well, at first, I'm talking to gorgeous, super gorgeous, uh, blonde, green eyes, just super freaking gorgeous. Is this story wife approved? Yeah. Okay. Like my wife knows I probably have a kid in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. So, uh, so long story short, like, you know, I'm trying to, to talk to her and stuff like that. My brother, you know, huge, huge cock block, notices there's something different about her, her accent. Now he says, where are you from? And she said, London. He was born in London. Oh, so you're out of the game. He was raised in <laughs> London, even though he was a Florian. He had nothing. I mean, he, he just started, they just kicked it off. And here I am just out. Right. So we did not pay for dinner. We she kept sending bottles of wine, so on and so forth. So it got to we we stayed there almost all night long. But then, uh, you know, here I am kind of cock blocked. I'm out of the picture, you know, whatever. Well, they're fixing the clothes. And she asked my brother, hey, why don't you come out? You know, let's go out and party and stuff like that. And he said, well, you know, I can't. But I'm with my brother or whatever. And she said, oh, no, let me introduce him to my sister. Well, his sister worked there and she was the bartender. Luckily enough, I'm not the most attractive guy, but luckily enough, she had already seen me. So it was, she was more than happy when I came up to talk to her. So we went out with them that night, partied, had a great freaking time. They took us home. I remember waking up that morning. She was not in the bed. I couldn't, you know, getting there that night, we, we were drunker than Cooter Brown. Uh, couldn't tell you what the house looked like, where we were at, nothing. We were just completely just whatever. We threw out all safety aspects. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Every single one of them. But we did keep TPI, two-person integrity. Okay. We were buddy system work. We, we were battle together. Buddies. We had a battle. battle buddy for sure. So if one of you are getting kidnapped, you both are getting kidnapped. 100%. 100%. <laughs> So then I wake up and I realize she's not in the bed and I'm like, shit, where the hell am I? Like it's clicking now, responsibilities, where the hell am I? Where's my stuff? So I check, I got my wallet, no money's missing or anything like that. So I put on my pants, on my jeans, and I, I remember opening up, the, and this bedroom is huge. Absolutely, well it's not like huge wide, but it's tall. And I peek open the door and it's this long freaking hallway. And I'm like, where the fuck am I? <laughs> so I start hollering for my brother. You know, I'm saying his name over. Eventually, another door peeks open, and he sticks his head out, looking at me the same way, like, where the hell are we? So he steps out. He's just in his freaking underwear. And we keep walking down this. It, it felt like it was a mile-long hallway. It wasn't really that long. But I remember that all the archways were, were curved archways. You know what I mean? So we hear some some noises of people talking. So we follow the noises, and I'm telling you, it was like something out of a of a movie. We both peek around the corner in your underwear. I'm in my jeans. He's okay. in his underwear, <laughs> freshly shaven for my electric razor. May I add? Anyway, so we peek around the corner, and there's this woman standing over the stove with an apron, and she's cooking. There's a man at the table reading a newspaper, and there's. A boy sitting at the table eating a bowl of cereal. I'm telling you, it was something like out of a movie. Like, like you're I, in the wrong house. Well, not even. It was just like this. Yeah. Like I've seen this on the Wonder Years or something. Did you recognize the lady cooking? No. Not at all. <laughs> My brother sneezes. 
and gets their attention. The man sitting at the table lowers his newspaper down and is peeking over these these thick black glasses at us. And the boy looks up from his cereal and the mom turns around and she's cooking eggs in a skillet and says, you know, good morning. Why don't you sit down and join us? So we're kind of caught. So my brother's like, well, excuse me, let me just run. So he ran to get some clothes on. He brought me a shirt. I put a shirt on and we sit down. And we were probably sitting there for a good 20, 30 minutes talking to the man and, and the woman. She had who, sat down who are these people? feeding us breakfast and stuff like that and talking to the, boy. the boys, asking us 150 questions. And we're like, shit, we got sold to China spies or something. Just asking us all these questions. Well, then the girls come in and they're in bathing suits with towels wrapped around them. And they come in and the, the girl that I had hooked up with comes and sits in my lap and is hugging and kissing on me and stuff like taking food off my plate and, and feeding her and feeding me. And then the, the girl that my brother hooked up with, she's sitting next to him just on top of him. Just It was so freaking weird. And me and my brother both are just looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? I guess that morning the girls had gotten up super freaking early before they called it tea, right, for breakfast. And they went to the store and got us bathing suits. So they're like, hey, we got your bathing suit. Go put on your bathing suits. So me and my brother, you know, we finished talking, whatever. Well, the dad says, hey, tomorrow I'm going to take you all fishing. To give context, you're in their parents' house. Yes, 100%. <laughs> now, let me explain this. Their mother was an attorney. She was a lawyer. Their dad was a heart surgeon. Oh, God. Their brother was eight years old. One of them is in college. To be a doctor, working on a doctor's degree. The other one's working on her law degree. So, buddy, we could not have scored better. All you are is two idiot Americans that got off a ship. 100%. 100%. Now, keep in mind, we've only paid for the cab ride from the ship to the hotel, and each of us have put in $75. We couldn't tell you where our other two buddies were. No idea. <laughs> They're off on their own adventure at this point. 100%. Right? So, long story short, the dad, we ended up staying with them all five days. Which this is a common, this is a common story. It's what I want to bring up. This is what you hear a lot with yes. Australia. It's like the Australian families will bring you in with in, in hopes that you marry their daughters and take them back to America with you. I don't, I don't think, no, I, I wouldn't agree with take them back to America because of the proposition their dad gave us. Oh, what he said. So, so during that whole time, we went and partied with them every night. They took off work. Like, we were with them nonstop. Like, we did. We fell for these women. Their dad took us deep sea fishing. Uh, we went scuba diving. We played football in, in, the, in their backyard while their dad grilled kangaroo steaks. This reminds me of the story, Wedding Crashers, and you ended up on an island. Yes! <laughs> yeah. You know what? If that movie had been out before this time, I would have definitely told my brother, Hey, bro, we just crashed this whole family. <laughs> But other than that, we didn't spend a single dime. Like the girls would not let it. We tried. We, yeah, you know what I mean. We we were we were very southern gentlemen. He was from the south as well. We were very gentlemen with the whole family. Like we offered to clean the kitchen after you know dinners and stuff like that. Just loved it anyway. So to bring that story yeah, to a close, say, yeah. So we had to be back on the ship by zero six in the morning. We're an hour and a half away from the ship, from the pier. Their dad offered to drive us back. 
So we're driving back, you know, kiss them goodbye. They're in tears. We're in tears. Mm-hmm. The mom's in tears. The little boy, he was still asleep, but I'm sure he would have been in tears too. You guys take family photos and shit together? No. Christmas cards? We did. Now, <laughs> we did take a picture with, with them, and we did have a picture with the little brother. I can't find it for the life of me. I wish I still had it. Um, but we pull up, and you can see over, you can see the big 6'3". On oh, the yeah. mass of the yep. ship. I know right? what you're talking about. Yep. The dad pulls off to the side. I'm sitting in the driver's seat. My brother is sitting in the middle of the back seat. And he says, fellas, it has been an honor and a privilege to have gotten to know you all over these few years. Or these few days. I can tell my, my daughters are in love. And I'm pretty sure you all are in love with my daughters. And we, yes, sir. Yeah, we had a great time. Thank you. And we're just very... You know, appreciated and so on and so forth. And he says to us, if you tell me to turn this car around, I will take y'all back home and I'll ensure that you guys have good jobs and I will hide you from the American government. Holy crap. Bro, I turn around and looked at my brother. My brother's looking at me. Our eyes are this big. My brother didn't say anything. And I said, sir, I wish we could. We've got to get back to the ship. Nothing else was said. He drove us. Pulled us up. We got out. He got out. We got out. Hugs, handshakes. We got on that ship. And, buddy, I'll tell you, for the next however many months it was till we got home, me and my brother sat there. His bunk was right under mine. We just both said, we messed up. Yeah. Messed up. You hear, you know, of sailors and their exploits and stuff. Now, I probably got a kid in other countries, blah, blah, blah. Even my wife to this day knows I probably have a kid in Australia. That was on purpose. That was intentional. Because he's going to be a money maker later when he's grown up. Yes. His mama was was tall, brunette with crystal clear blue eyes. Tan skin. I'm talking just to the nines. Good Lord. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Perth, Australia was the best port I'd ever been to. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. So we leave the Kitty Hawk now. We're past Perth. Past Perth. We're past life-changing wealth, living in a different country. 100%. What's your next duty station? Uh, USS Nimitz out of San Diego, California. God, dog, you can't get away from the carriers, can you? No. All right. No. And so how was the Nimitz? Uh, Nimitz was great. I loved the Nimitz. Uh, At that time, uh, I got there recently after getting there. I put on second class. Um, Just going through a divorce and all that kind of stuff. I was one of those dumb ones that married... uh, a foreign national, I was in Japan. Yeah, that's a whole another story. You left the Australian girl, but we married another. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff happens, you know. Whatever. Uh, anyway, going through that, I'm, I'm free. You know, I'm single. I'm young. Uh, living in San Diego, I paid fifteen hundred dollars a month and had a loft apartment on the Gasland on East Street, the Gasland District. Absolutely loved it. Was having a great freaking time. Uh, Nimitz. Uh, I was in Essex Division. Great people. Great time. What's S6? S6 is aviation supply. Okay. Yeah. Uh, absolutely love the Nimitz. I had n- nothing bad to say about the Nimitz at all. And awesome our, skipper. Yeah. Just all, all around. And you're an AK at this time? No, it was um, after after I had got injured from Buzz and had to, they sent me ATD to ATD school, which is undesignated, meaning I don't have a job. Yeah. Um, as an airman. So at that school was in Pensacola, which is nice because I was right there from from home, yeah, forty five minutes away from home. Um, it went 
And I'm Disney Airman, and when I got to the Kitty Hawk, I got lucky enough that they didn't put me on the flight deck. I got put in supply. Super lucky. Super lucky. You probably wouldn't be in the Navy. Uh, pro- I don't know about that. That boast made world's tough, man. That's a tough one. I, I love being in supply because I loved helping other people or getting yeah. people what they needed or wanted. Yeah. Um, and I... So you're SK then on the... Yes. So I struck... Uh, I put a request. I struck SK. They sent me to SKA school in Marine, Mississippi. I got mapped to third class at A school. Got back to the ship as a third class. Shortly after getting to the Kitty or to the Nimitz, I picked up rank to, to E five to second class petty officer, uh, working in S six division, aviation supply division, and fell in love with it. Loved it. Great crew, uh, great people, great port visits. Uh, out of that deployment or that time, well, also. Uh, I got a confession. I started the first time ever, and I always told myself I wouldn't. I started actually dating a Navy woman. She was part of one of the squadrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, I mean, it just happened. And so what, what the bad part about it was every port visit I was with her. Yeah. I wasn't able to go out and explore. No shenanigans. No shenanigans. That's your battle buddy. That's my battle buddy. <laughs> so, we, so we'll move on from the Nimitz then. Well, I went to Chennai, India. Oh. We were, yeah, we were the first aircraft carrier pulling to Chennai, India. Uh, so what was that? What's that like? Uh, it was it was horrible, man. That was if people were aware of what was going on or checking the news or whatever. Uh, luckily enough, me and her both had taken leave during that time, and we had gotten a a place at a resort, um, which was about an hour away from the ship. But they didn't have a pier big enough for us to pull into, so we basically had to anchor out. Um, and they had Liberty boats. Well. The seas there were so rough, like it was, it was horrible. The seas got so rough that people couldn't get back to the ship. They were having to camp. They were having to sleep on top of conics boxes and on the ground there on the pier, which is a shipping container. What we call conics yes. boxes. Yes. Yeah. So what, what he's describing is like these little old boats with a single motor on the back, and it just takes you back and forth to the ship. And the ship could be hundreds of yards away from yep. the pier, and that's how you get on and off, on and off a carrier. And if you can imagine, there's fifty five hundred people. This takes a long time. Yeah. In calm water. Yes. Now the waters are rough. Yeah. The ship will say, hey, we're not taking any more bodies in. Y'all got to fend for yourself on the pier. So they actually had one of the Liberty boats uh, started to sink. And a second class was the last person on board that ship getting everybody to the second one and get meritorious promoted to first class from that action. We lost the ladder well, the, the basically the stairs that take you from a pier to the ship, lost that. That's how rough the seas were, just right where we were moored at. Um, we stayed at a freaking sweet resort uh, on the beach. I wouldn't go to the beach because we saw somebody taking a shit right there on the beach. That was kind of downfall of India. Uh, even on the ride in our little tuk-tuk, one of those little, you know, three, three, two wheels in the back, one wheel in the front, whatever, completely open, whatever. That took us the whole hour ride away. Uh, we saw so many people just on the side of the street just shit. And it's like, what the hell is going on here? You know, there's bathrooms for a reason, dog. But uh, we had a great time, a great resort. Stayed at a little bungalow on the beach. That was probably, uh, other than Dubai, it was probably one of the best places. Um, and Unless you go to the donkey show in Singapore. Yeah, well, 
we'll, we'll probably save that story for another that's, podcast. That's a good story. I'm just saying, if you haven't been to a donkey show in Singapore, and if you've been to the one in Tijuana, it doesn't compare to Singapore. <laughs> Singapore, too, because Thailand is legendary for... Not Singapore. Yeah, Thailand. I'm oh, okay. sorry. Thailand. Okay. Like I said, I've been to Singapore. It was pretty pretty vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. Singapore is great, though. Beautiful no. place. But the alcohol is way too expensive. That's the only thing I have to say negative about. One hundred percent. But I was I was there in Singapore for two months by myself on beach day when I was on the Nimitz, um, and I will say like I've never been to out of thirty seven countries that I've been to, I've never been to a country that was so patriotic uh, and celebrating their independence because they yeah. were part of Malaysia and they they got their own independence from Malaysia. I've never been to a country where I saw those country flags hanging from people's windows. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not even, and luckily enough, I was there at one time for their Independence Day, which was phenomenal. But just on a regular basis, had just how patriotic they were and proud of their country and heritage that they were. But they're not a very old country. They're not. No. They're not at all. Very strict, though. I mean, you can't even spit, I think, a bubble gum on the street without getting beat by a cane. Yeah, and the, it, a lot of people don't know, like, it's an island. You can't just own a car. You actually have to apply for a special license yes. just to own a car, a singular car. And you can't own that car for more than two years. After two years, you have to get a new car. I That's why you that. never see all beat-up cars or trucks it's like true. that in Singapore. And remember that kid that was, like, the U.S. ambassador's kid, and he went and keyed a bunch of cars? Yes! And so the ambassador... <laughs> Flew him home thinking he was going to get out. This is like mid-90s, I think, late 90s. I don't even want to say it was that long. I want to say I was I joined 03. Uh, if it wasn't that incident, it was a, a very, very similar incident yeah. that happened. Well, Singapore said, you you fly that dude back or you're not going to pull any more carriers in here. And Singapore is a vital, vital port for oh, us. 100%. Yeah, super friendly, helps us out, right? Well, a lot of people don't know that in Singapore, they show us these videos before we get off the ship. That if you do something so egregious that you literally will be caned in Singapore, what they do is they 20, 30 foot long bamboo sticks and they wet them down to their noodles and then they'll tie you up naked to what looks like an easel. Spread eagle. Yep. And they will take these, these canes and depending on the lashings that you get for whatever crime you've committed, they will, and they don't care, right? This American kid, he got lashed and they will lash you. And if say you get six lashings. And the first two, and you pass out after the second one, they will revive you. They will wait. Mm-hmm. They'll revive you. Yeah. That's scary. Can you imagine what that's like? Because you're like in prison or holding cell just waiting for your punishment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's got to be terrible. I remember I was staying in the hotel, and I was walking back. It was late at night, 12 or 1 o'clock. And these three guys are sitting on these, these stairs going to the store. And there's another guy there. Or whatever that that's, I don't know what he was doing there, but they started just talking smack to me or whatever, give me a hard time, and I'm trying to ignore whatever. But they start to surround me to where I can't go anywhere. And this guy comes out of the woodwork like Jackie Chan and kicks all three of their asses, and then tells me get on his bike. I I don't know why. <laughs> like again, not practicing proper opsec or ORM. I got on his bike. And we're running down the street going, God, like, it looked like everything was going, like, like you, all you see is a tube of what's in front of you. Got to the, he took me to the hotel that I was at, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? That was the first time I ever had Tiger beer. Horrible beer. I'm sorry, Singaporeans. I know y'all are super proud of it. It's just not my taste or flavor. Uh, but that was just some, just craziness. Like, what the hell am I doing? Like, 
riding 120 miles an hour on the back of this guy's bike. No helmet. Don't even know who the fuck he is. <laughs> all I know is he came out of the woodwork like Jackie Chan and beat all three of these dudes' asses that were fucking picking on me. And he got me safely back to my hotel. And you'll never meet him again. Never. Never. <laughs> good Samaritan. That man deserves a Good Samaritan Award. 100%. I'd, I'd write you up for a Navy Award if I could. 100%. So you leave the Nimitz. Yep, left the Nimitz. And where are you going to next? Uh, well, I was still dating that girl at the time. So she had gotten out of the Navy. Uh, bad thing about that, I was stationed in San Diego, but we had apartments together in Ventura, California. So I was driving three hours every Friday and Monday morning to and from. But she got out of the Navy, and from there I went to uh, ASD Brunswick, Maine. Uh, and she ended up moving there with me. Okay. Okay. Uh, which it didn't last very long. She ended up getting a job as a model or whatever and ended up cheating on me, you know, that same, you know, all that shit. And ended up broken it off with her. Uh, but Maine, if you've never been to Maine, Maine is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I, if my wife would let us, she didn't like cold weather, uh, I'd move back to Maine in a heartbeat. Like I heard Maine's awesome. If you're an outdoorsy kind of guy, Maine is fantastic. If you're not... And all you want to do is sit inside or whatever. It's it's not the place for you. You no. got to get outside and enjoy Maine. Absolutely beautiful people there. So friendly. We used to go on Thursdays at four o'clock in the afternoon down to the wharf. That's when all the lobstermen are coming in with all their catch. And you could buy a pound of lobster right from them for maybe two dollars. And you're not getting the lobsters like you get at Walmart or whatever, where they're farm raised and all that kind of stuff. These things are, you know, they're a little bit smaller. It's kind of like I compare it to a crawfish boil, right? We would do lobster boils. You know, everybody would pitch in. One of us would go down to the wharf and buy five, six pounds of lobster. And you'd sit there and just freaking have a good old time on lobster. They had lobster drive-ins. You could drive in like a place like Sonic. Some chick rolls out to you and skates with lobster and butter and potatoes and corn and you eat it right there in your car they give you a little plastic bandana to put on it's fantastic love maine 100 it's super expensive especially to heat i remember i paid i paid over three thousand dollars one winter just to heat my little house like I, it got to where i couldn't afford oil I, I would literally close off everything and i'd open up my stove and then i ran out of propane so then i was building a fire in the back Yes, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. But like I said, I'd go back to Maine in a freaking heartbeat. With better HVAC system. With better HVAC system. And when I left there, they were building new houses where they were having, um, you know, uh, internal, you know, AC and heating put in. The first place I lived in was oil heated. And eventually I got onto base housing, but it was kind of off base and they had hydro heating. So you had these pipes in your walls and your floors. Uh, that heated the house. Other than that, you just put, you know, a, during the summertime, you put a wall unit in to cool your house down. But uh, Maine was absolutely gorgeous. Snowboarded probably every weekend. Mm. Uh, saw like moose in the middle of a freaking 295 interstate. Like, just what, had a great time. What's your job there? Uh, I was working in supply at ASD, Aviation Support Division, so supporting just, the the, v, uh, the VP squadrons. Okay, or so the P squadrons. The yeah. P3 squadrons, are yeah. right. You're supporting them via parts and whatever yeah. they need. Yeah. So you, you leave Maine, and is that where you join the CBs? Uh, yeah, so uh, a, lot of sh- a lot of shit was going, not necessarily, a lot of shit was going kind of personally. And I had screened for Dev Group in Virginia. Um, 
I didn't make it to being a SEAL, but that was the closest I could get was to support the SEAL. So went to Dev Group, was in Dev Group for about two months, absolutely loved it. Um, but because of the stuff I had going on personally with my mom passing, my sister, you know, doing her bullshit and my niece and nephew, uh, I had too much going on that I wouldn't have been able to give them the time and effort and focus that they needed. So I ended up going back to Maine and they just wrote it up as basically temporary assigned duty. Um, we closed that base down during, uh, I think it was called BRAC, when we shut down a lot of bases and everything like that. Um, and then detailer comes in and says, hey, I got these open, so I need the closest thing to Alabama as possible. Well, he said, well, I got a battalion, NMCB-7, in Gulfport, Mississippi. I was like, well, what do they do? He said, well, they're CBs. Well, I remember my detailer was a CB. Uh, and he just talked about times that they'd be on the beach grilling burgers and see ships out there. And that's what they did. So I was like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. So then I ended up, went to NMCB-7 in Goldport, Mississippi. So what are CBs? So CBs are basically, they, they, they build in fight, like what's in their name or their, their motto but basically what we, in the CBs, what we go and do is, um, especially like Afghanistan or whatever, our job was to go build four operating bases and then you have to defend that that base. The CBs do. CBs do, right? So it's construction, vertical and horizontal construction. We, we've coined the term dirt sailors. Sure. Like I, not you and me, but just the general Navy. Sure. They're sailors, but they don't go to ships. Some they, do. Some do on occasion. But... They primarily go and build hospitals, schools, runways, whatever. I remember vividly the uh, in the book with the old breed by Eugene Sledge, which is basically very good book. Very good book, and it's basically what the the series after Band of Brothers, The Pacific, was kind of written on. Yeah, and I remember then the Marines saying being there on the front lines in the Pacific Theater, fighting for every inch of ground they could gain. And they looked to the right, and the CBs were out there building an airstrip right in the middle of war, right? And I just think that's super cool because, like, those guys didn't join the Navy to, like, necessarily fight on the front lines. But I have a lot of respect because at the end of the day, their job in the Navy is to build and fight, right? And the Navy says they'll go where the Navy calls. And I don't know much about the CB world being an aviation guy my whole career, but I just know that the CBs are just this unique, super proud, tiny little sliver of the Navy. And I just think that's super, super neat. Hey, the sad thing is, is a lot of times they're considered the redheaded stepchild of the Navy, right? So it, unless you've served with the CBs, and I, and I can say proudly, I'm an honorary B. Uh, you got, I served, you got served, your pin, right? Well, not only that, but... I started with the CVs for, you know, almost 13 years in my career. Wow. Um, and I loved every every single minute of it. There was, there was times that I get frustrated because I felt like we were always trying to recreate the wheel when it came to stuff. But the camaraderie that you have in the CVs, like the small unit leadership you see with the CVs, you see second classes in charge of huge projects. Yeah, there's a chief, you know, assigned to it. But a second class that's leading this whole project, um, especially in Afghanistan, you know, places like that, you see that small unit leadership happening. And the fact that they, they're so proud 
of their history and their heritage, you don't see that in any other rate or or platform. You know, when it, if it comes to to aviation side of supply or, or aviation navy, you don't see that pride and heritage. Surface navy, you don't see that pride and heritage. The CBs, like if you learn the CB song, you learn about Marvin Shields, you learn the who the who the father of the CBs were, like. If you don't have your passcode as a CB birthday, you are wrong. <laughs> this, that's the worst OPSEC in the world. Not everybody's CB scouts are going to get hacked. <laughs> no, I mean, nobody knows a birthday unless you're a CB. <laughs> and then you don't know the proper form that it goes into. Um, absolutely love the CBs. Uh, and as an honorary B, like I, I, they, they did, they made me an honorary B. CBs hold a very dear and special place in my heart and they always will the the stuff that you go through that that band of brothers type aspect um that you go through with them and that knowing that you always got your brother to lean on uh lost of lost a lot of good people being with the bees yeah um but checked into goldport uh with uh nmcb7 Magnificent Seven um, was with them from 2010 to 2012 when we decommed Seven. Uh, we decommed shortly after our Afghanistan deployment. Uh, when I checked in, uh, they shipped me to uh, Djibouti, Africa for 10 months. Uh, Camp Lemonnier. It was a lot different then than what it is now. Now, I, I've been there a couple of times after just in transit, whatever. I'm like, holy cow, this place is great. The only bad thing is, is now you can't leave the base. When I was there, we could leave. Like, we went and dove with well sharks and went to French Beach and all that kind of stuff. It was a great time. Uh, from seven, uh, went to Afghanistan. So what was, I want to backtrack a little bit. Sure. What was Djibouti like when uh, you get there? Hot as hell. Because most people that are listening do not even know Djibouti so Africa exists. If they're... If, if God created an actual asshole <laughs> of planet Earth, I'd, I'd probably even say the universe, it was Djibouti, Africa. Like, what was your living conditions like? Uh, we lived in Clues, which is basically a 20-foot Connex box that has been refurbished to be a living quarters. Uh, These are insulated shipping containers. Yeah, now, first when I got there, we were in tents. Oh, my god! Tents with, like, 50 people in a tent, and you're talking. At night, the temperature got to 90-something degrees. You know, during the day, heat index 135. Like, it's literally melting plastic. Like, CBs, we'd have to wear hard hats. Even if we weren't on construction, it was our deployment hat. We had hard hats. People's hard hats were melting. Like, on the, that's how hot it was. And if the temperature ever got to... To below 90, you'd see locals wearing like they were about to go to a ski resort. Like, it was crazy. And I think what was the big cot was the big thing that they would chew. Like, the locals would chew cot. Uh, and it would, I guess, they kind of like, I guess if you were to take like a whole big freaking pound of marijuana and shove it in your face, that was about equivalent to what cot was. Uh, same effect, uh, kind of helped them to deal with the heat. Um, and that's where I, I kind of learned... More about as a as a supply type, my job there was to be the paying agent. And my chief at that time I was a second class. My chief at that time, 
he was basically the uh, the core. And our job was to go out to these local vendors, concrete, wood, stuff like that. And we would, you know, if we had to buy tools for the bees or whatever, we would go out and everything had to be paid with cash. Uh, so we would always have to pay in cash. Uh, but I got really friendly with one of the guys that worked at one of the actual local hardware stores. Um, and would just sit there and talk to him, you know, for forever. I drink their tea or whatever while uh, they were putting all of our stuff together that we needed. That's when I really learned um, the true the true aspect of Islam and what it means to be Muslim in Islam. And I kind of took that and I kind of did my own. The whole time I was there, I kind of did my own religion study on Buddhism, being that was in Japan, Hinduism, uh, Islam, and then, you know, Christianity kind of looked at it. And you really saw that Islam was very, was a very, very peaceful religion. It was those radical Islamists that were making it to be worse than, you know, to, to be bad, especially to the American populace. We looked at, you're Muslim or Islamic, you know, you're a terrorist. Uh, but when you're out there and you're talking to those people, seeing how peaceful that religion truly is, uh, you gain a whole different respect for them and understanding that they are dealing with that prosecution that we, you know, and that prejudice that we saw in that because of what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. And these poor innocent people, you know, are being held to that same standard when they just want to love and peace everybody, you know, just the same. The same things we're taught in the Bible to do. Um, yeah, that was that was Djibouti, Africa. I had a great time. Like I said, dove with whale sharks, freaking go to French Beach all the time, snorkel and stuff like that. It was a lot of work, long hours, super hot, uh, but loved it. You know what's weird about the CVs is my neighbor across the street in the Army, retired Army, mm-hmm. I was just talking to him two days ago, and he mentions to me, he says, you know, I love the Navy. You know what I love about the Navy? I love the CVs. And, like, it took me Everybody back. Everybody says that, yeah. I was like, CVs really? Good, hey, CVs, when it comes, especially supply, you know, my mentors in supply always told me, you're when I got to the bees now, uh, your job is not to say no. Yeah. Your job is to find a way to yes. Uh, and I took that to heart as someone who likes to please and servitude and, and to do his share. I made that my whole philosophy, uh, not just in the Navy or in my job, but in life, period. My job is not to say no. My, my job is to find a way to yes where nobody is going to get in trouble or arrested. If it means I got to work in the gray area, I got to work in the gray area. And that's that's when they say that you tell CBs you need something, they procure it. I guarantee you there's a LS in there that has that same mindset and philosophy. It's like, hey, you know what? You need you need a tire? There's a tire laying around. I'm going to get it for you. I don't care whose it is. I'm going to get it. You know, it's not stealing. It's procuring. I've heard stories about CBs will come to a base in Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever, true or not, and the base commander will bring everybody together and say, hey, the CBs are on base. Do not steal from those guys because they'll steal twice as much from you. 100%. (laughs) That is a fact. That is a fact. You leave it out, it's unlocked, it's gone. It's gone. And we're not stealing it. It's procurement. It's procurement. Procurement. We have a job to do too. (laughs) <laughs> it's not my fault you could not my, exactly 100 percent um so you left seven so well i mean during seven that was my first tour to afghanistan uh right before we had decommissioned um 
Afghanistan was not was not was not good was not cool. It really a lot of it made you think of you know you you get that second thought of why am I here why am I doing this? You know that you know by that time it was two thousand what I think it was two thousand fifteen at that time. So we've been in this war we've been there you know for over ten years. So a lot of stuff is established. And you think I'm here because a lot of my brothers and sisters have been here before. So that's what I'm fighting for now is the lives that were lost before. But when you look at the overall, like, what what are we really fighting for? Because uh, you get mixed emotions from the local. You know, some would want you there, some wouldn't. Uh, but I, I got put on to ECS. Uh, I'm ECS? sorry. What's ECS? CSE, Convoy Security Element. Right, so... We'd go, <clears throat> go out twice a week with CSE, and we would basically, that's where the CBs, you know, get their name. They, they build and defend, right? Uh, we're not an offensive unit. We're a defensive unit. Um, but we'd go out. Our job with CSE was to provide convoy security element to get building materials and everything like that to our, our forward operating bases that, that CBs were building and having to defend at the same time, you know, and saw some, you know, I'm not going to go into it here, but, you know, we saw some, some stuff happen. Uh, but after that deployment, 2015, uh, we DCOM 7. Uh, I called my detailer <clears throat> to pick orders, and I remember him going, oh, you're going to 20th SRG. And I'm like, well, that's shore duty. I still have sea duty time left over. And he says, and? I said, well, if, if I can do short duty, can I see about doing short duty somewhere else? And he said, uh, LS2, I've been told to send you to the 20th SRG. That's where you're going. Now, this was a master chief that was detailing at the time. Because when you're decommissioning, you deal with separate detailers, right? So a detailer is the person in the Navy that assigns you your next job. Yeah. Basically. Your life is at their, their disposal. mercy, yes. right? Like sometimes you'll find a detailer that'll hook you up and sometimes it's just the people that'll say, this is what you're going to do and this is where you're going to go. Yeah, like you really don't have a choice. Yeah. And what's SRG? So 20th SRG was, was the 20th um, supply readiness group or support readiness group. For the CBs? For the CBs. Okay. And Gulfport, Mississippi. It was literally two doors down from our NFCB 11 supply office was their supply office. Um, I was like, he said, well, no, you're going to the 20th SRG in Gulfport, Mississippi. I was like, well, shit, okay, uh, what happened? Anyway, I get off the phone with them, check out. We decom in MCB-7, uh, taking the 20th SRG. Uh, 20th SRG was probably the worst command that I had been to at the time. Um, bunch of civilians worked there, so on and so forth. But I did learn a lot about my job being there uh not really too much to tell about 20th srg not a lot should happen short duty but wasn't short duty uh come up for orders again picked up first uh come up for orders again i called the detailer and the detailer says um you're going to nmcb 11 i said what he says you're going to mcb 11 i have a sticky note right here saying to send you to NMCB 11 when you called me. I was like, what is going on? I want to meet this guy that's apparently got my career in his hands. 100%. Right? Right. I mean, I knew who it was. 
Um, so I was like, all right, I need an MCB 11. I'll go to MCB 11. Went to NMCB 11. Uh, probably one of the best commands I had ever been to. Uh, loved it. Great people. I mean, we, we were the best battalion ever to exist. I had some of the best mentorship, best chiefs uh, there. A, a master chief that I hold very near and dear to my heart, who is like an older brother I never had, as the reason why I put on anchors. Uh, did uh, did deployment to Road to Spain. Uh, first time being there, great deployment. Uh, did deployment to Guam. That was like my 20-some-odd time being in Guam. Um, but absolutely loved it. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, MCB-11 alumni and we've we lost a lot of good brothers and sisters from mcb 11 but i still take i still take stay in touch with a lot of those guys and then like what was your deployments like at mcb 11 oh man that's one thing i can tell you about cb deployments uh work hard we play harder um a cb deployment is not like being on a ship right cb deployment uh, and I always used to laugh, you know, I was on two aircraft carriers. I had already had, so I've, I've got 13 deployments under my belt. Uh, so, some of those being with CBs, we call them, I call them green deployments, right? You're not haze gray underway, being on a ship where you, you sleep in a, in a, in a small little area, you know, your rack or whatever, where you have coffin locker, you have very limited space, whatever. No, you go on deployment with CBs, if you're E6, you get your own freaking barracks room. Your own bathroom, everything. Now, we couldn't eat at the galley. So, in, in Spain, so we, we all bought our own little, you know, skillets and stuff like that to keep in our rooms. We had our own first class mess we'd go and drink at. We had beer on tap. Like, it was, it's not, you had TV. You constantly have communication. You pick up your phone, call your, you know, call your loved ones back home, FaceTime, video cam, or whatever. It was completely different. And then you you still have weekends off. Like I, I can never understand that being on deployment with the CBs is we have weekends off. Like there's no two shifts. There's one shift. You work from you PT from zero five to 06, from zero seven to seventeen hundred. You worked. After that, you're free to do whatever. Completely different than being on a ship working 12 on 12, you know, off seven days a week. And then even when you pull into port three days, you get one day of duty. Not like that in the piece. You know, we were ground out every weekend. Like, where did just, you go? And where did you go with this battalion? Uh, so NMCB 11 went to Rota, Spain for seven months. Um, and then a second appointment with the MCB 11 was to Guam. For seven oh, so that, that was the only two places you went with. Yeah, that. because your rotation would be six, seven month appointment, and then you're home for twelve for workup. Because you, I mean, even during your your twelve months at home, you were super busy. I mean, you were more busy in home port than you were on deployment. Because being back at home, you were constantly doing training, leading up to field exercise at the end of the year. Uh, yeah, everybody loved to be on deployment more so than we wanted to be at home. I went to Gulfport one time for a school, and the thing that stuck out to me the most, and this is just pure CV at heart, is there signs everywhere that says, do not dig here, do not dig here, do not dig here. 
because CVs have all this big, heavy equipment. They dig holes. They literally have to put signs up all over the base that says, you cannot dig holes here. Yeah, but the one thing that they fail to understand is a lot of EOs uh, can't read. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you're an EO, uh, I love you to death. You're one of my favorites. That's an equipment operator, right? Equipment operator. Yeah, so <laughs> they, they drive all the equipment. Alpha dogs. Yeah. I love it, dude. <laughs> so we're talking, we went to Spain, we went to Guam, wrap up our tour with 11. Yep. We're, we're, we haven't made Chief yet. No, we, I picked, so up, picked Chief up Chief in 11 while in Guam. Okay. Yep. And then from there, where do we go? Oh, uh, well, I came back from that deployment. It was time to, to leave. And at that time I was like, I was getting, I'm getting close to retirement and I was thinking, you know, we'll just stay, um, you know, in this area. Well, I, I called a detailer. And, uh, again, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't made chief. I'm in Guam. I'm working on orders. I'm up for chief. Uh, I got, I made TICOM sailor of the year. Um, so I'm waiting on results to come out from the board. Right. So results come out. I picked up chief while in Guam. I did half of my season there as the only one selected for chief for our command. There was two others from the command that was doing turnover. Uh, with us in MCB 133. Uh, so, like, we're freaking running around like chickens with our heads cut off, having to deal with stuff. Like, we're the only three, and they having to deal with entire island of Guam selecting mess. Eventually, we just got to, like, fuck them. We're not doing shit with them. You know, even the Chiefs mess was like, they're doing some, some weird shit. We're not doing that. <laughs> uh, and I can tell you that I'm super glad that I went through season initiation with CBs than anybody else. And so in the Navy, to give preference, when, when you make E7, from E6 to E7 is the transition. We're the only branch in the Navy that transitions from when you make E6 to E7, you wear a different uniform, and you have to go through this entire initiation process. And the initiation process is... Uh, Basically, you learn the history of what a Navy chief is. Mm -hmm. You learn how to fold into that chief's mess, and you learn how to be an, an actual tool in the or a cog in the wheel of what the chief's mess is. Chief's mess is the greatest fraternity in the entire world. Brothers and sisters will do anything for you. When you're a chief, you are obligated obligated to help another chief, initiated and accepted chief. If somebody came off the streets on I forty and said. Hey, I need a tire and a tank of gas. I have to help you because you're part of my fraternity. And what what Sean's talking about is that he's a select at this point. And so he's going through this process of trying to be a part of the chief's mess. And all the chiefs that have been accepted are, are testing him and putting him through an initiation, much like you would see in a fraternity through different various tests. It could be physically. It could be mentally. It could be both at the same time. It's basically six weeks of 24-7, no off-duty, work, 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 work. Because that's the limited time we have to fold in. But it's also created one of the greatest bands of brothers and sisters that the military has ever seen. Yes. Uh, I would I would say, being that I was in Buds, I would say chief season, especially, I, I can't speak, because everybody's season is different. But for me, I would say chief season was 100 times tougher than Buds was. Buds was, was yeah, mostly mental, but there was a lot of the physical aspect. Chief season to me was very mental. Like season, 
screwed me up mentally big time. And, and a lot of that depends on the person going through. If you're passionate about it and if it means so much to you, uh, it really gets to you. You start over I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's hard to explain. Like I really can't even put into words. Um, so I'm going through cheese season there. And so going through season there, I'm also having to deal with what's going on in Road to Spain. They're moving. They're coming home to Gulfport. So I'm having to deal with what we have going on in Guam, what we have going on on the island side. And then I'm also having to keep up with what's going on back at home at Gulfport. Right. So I am just freaking running around like a chicken my head cut off, uh, trying to keep up, make sure everybody's happy. Uh, and the thing about Guam, too, is is we were not allowed, CB-wise, I can't speak for the rest of the island selects, we were not allowed to ride in vehicles. So you have to run and march You have everywhere? to walk everywhere. Now, supply was three miles away from anything else. So I'd have to walk to supply, check on my guys in supply, and I'd get a call, hey, where are you at? Blah, blah, blah. We need you here. And I have to walk through my, I'm talking, I lost 40, almost 40 pounds during chief season. Just in my th- first three weeks in Guam. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, I was, I'll never forget to, uh, the same the same guy that I had said that is very near and dear to my heart will always be my big brother. Uh, basically, my sea daddy. Right? So, being, I was the only one to get selected in NMCB 11 in Guam, uh, they would always pull me to the side and tell me other stuff, give me extra tasking or, or whatever, other mentorship type stuff. Um, he called me into his his office late at night. I thought I was in trouble. We got done getting beat down with the whole CD mess there. Uh, loaded, I got in the back of the truck, and he's, he's not talking to me. And the one thing, I thought he would give me the hardest time going through season. He gave me... No hard time except for once going through season. And I remember it tore me up. Get to his office because he was our SEL. Uh, get to his office. He He's a senior enlisted leader. Senior enlisted leader. Uh, and he tells me, I want you to get a charge from every CB chief on this island. And a charge is basically written words of wisdom or leadership advice. That be that could be passed on in to you from a chief that's already seasoned with through the processes has learned to be a chief has has experienced because as a chief you are their brother you're their sister their dad their grandpa their boss and their caregiver I'd, I'd say mentor as well and, and mentor right yeah and so doing that that is a that is a big charge yes yeah uh, and I hadn't gotten his charge yet. And he won't give it to you unless you get all the other ones. He won't. Right. Which really pissed me off. Because he knew. <laughs> he knew how I felt about him. And I knew how he felt. I mean, he always called me. Even as a first class, he was a master. He always called me little bro. We were we were the complete opposites of each other. He was a wild dog. I mean, I'm talking just wild. He, was, he loved to party and have a good time. I was more of the cool, calm, collective type. We were complete opposites, but we just connected. You know what I mean? From 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 day one that we met, you know, and we we always kept our relationship personal or professional, never personal at all. And here I am, excited that I'm going to be part of the mess. 
and me and him can have more of a personal relationship. He was the first charge I asked for. I'm sorry. He was the fourth charge I asked for. Not the first. Fourth. And I think that kind of hurt his feelings, too, a little bit. He just won't admit to it because he, he tries to be tough. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's got me sitting down, and he tells me, um, I'm, he says, I want you to get a charge from every chief, CB chief on this island. He knows I'm LS. I'm not a CB. At the time, I wasn't a CB. And I, I'm kind of like looking at him. And he says, and I said, it's my charge book. Because the whole time I'm thinking, do you know how, I mean, Guam is not a huge island, but it's pretty big. <laughs> and I have to walk everywhere. And I have to walk everywhere. <laughs> That's literally where my mindset was. I have to walk everywhere and you want me to get every chiefs on this island charge. That's impossible. I didn't say that to him because CB's motto is can't do. I'm not going to say that's impossible, but I'm like, all right, I'm going to revert back to what I kind of pick up that we're in charge. It's it's our season, blah, blah, blah. So I tell him, Master Chief, it's, it's my charge book. And he says, and he, he smiled, and I thought I had given a right answer. I thought I was winning. I thought he was proud of me. Because you never win during the season. No, not at all. No, you never have a win. But I thought... Here it is, the man that I look up to and idolize is proud of me. That's the smile he had. And then it faded real quick. And he says, I'm not giving you a charge. I'm not giving you my charge until you get every CB on this island's charge. And, and I said, it's my charge book. And the fact that you won't give me your charge because you know I want it most of all is fucked up. I said that to him. Now, I'm getting a knot in my throat. You're just kind of waiting for this. My eyes are watering because I'm ready just to fucking start crying. That's how upset I am. He stands up. I stand up. And I'm a little dude. He's a big boy. And I, I'm in his face. He's in my face. And he tells me, get the fuck out of his office. Dude, I was crushed. Crushed. Oh, God, I was so heartbroken. Because I had pissed him off. I had disappointed him. Dad wasn't proud of me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was so upset. I went outside and I, I fucking lit up a cigarette. I'm sitting there crying like a fucking schoolgirl and just freaking just bawling. My sponsor comes out and says, That didn't go the way that you hoped it would go, did it? <laughs> That's all my sponsor said to me. Nothing else. And I said, No. <laughs> so my sponsor wanted me to get in the truck he's going to take me back down to to the barracks and stuff like that and i i did i walked i dried him up as much as i could i walked back to his office i opened up the door and i said master chief and then i stopped myself and i called him by his first name i said may i enter he said yeah come in and i just broke down crying told him i was sorry that I disappointed him, and so on and so forth, just broke down crying, and he did. He, he's not a hugger type, but he did. He picked me up off that chair, gave me the biggest bear hug, and said, come to my room in two hours. So I dried my tears up. He said, you know, he asked, are you okay? You know, how, how are you dealing with season? And I told him, I said, it is 
fucking me up mentally. I had never failed. Yes. I had yes. never failed. Yep. And the fact that I knew that I wouldn't <clears throat> have been the Ticom Sailor of the Year, I, I, I wouldn't be where I was if it hadn't been for that man. And I felt like I was not just failing at our task and stuff that we were given. I was failing at making him proud, making him think that he was right to spend that much time and effort on me. And that killed me. So I, I, I left, you know, he had, hey, when's the last time you've talked to mom and talking about my wife and so on and so forth. And I said, I haven't since season started or whatever. Uh, so I went, I did, I did what he said. I went to his room, I went to his room and he said, come on in. He said, call your wife. So I, I called my wife right there from his room because we didn't, we couldn't have our phones or anything. Uh, I called, I called my wife, was talking to her, you know, I felt a lot better and I go to leave and I'm just thanking him and he hands me his boots and tells me they better be clean. And in front of my door in the morning. <laughs> I said, shit. <laughs> I still can't fucking win. <laughs> so I did. I went back and I stayed. I mean, at this time, it's already 10 o'clock at night. I stayed up all night cleaning those damn boots. These boots were so old and crusty. Like, we're not wearing leather boots. You know, we're wearing the tan suede boots or stuff. And his, he, I felt bad as a supply type for not supplying him new boots. Come find out he had new boots. Those were his deployment pair that he had had for freaking years. But he wanted them clean like new. I, st- I did not sleep at all that night. I stayed up all night making those things look brand freak. If there was rubber from the sole that was off, I was burning it and moving it to patch in holes from the rubber on the bottom of his shoe. I'm talking like just those looked like brand new boots. And let me tell you something. That next day. He didn't say nothing about it. And I looked at his boots, and he had a brand new pair. He didn't even wear those. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even wear those. So, leave Guam, we get back home. So, why did you have to get... So, when you got all the CV's charges, what was that for? I didn't. You didn't? Oh, okay. I did. All right, we'll fast forward it. We're back home. We're back home. Um, So, then, we're back home. And I had, we were given a 96. 96 hour liberty, 96 four hour days liberty, off. Four days off, right? We were the last to come back from the appointment. Everybody had already been back. Uh, got off the bus on base, hugging and kissing on my wife and, and my kid. And I tell that same master chief told me, take the time off to be at home with your family. My sponsors told me, do the same thing. So I called my the, the season lead, our, our selectee lead, and told him, hey, uh, I'm going to take a day. I was given Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm going to just take Thursday. I'll be back Friday. He wasn't happy about it. I didn't give two shits, right? Because one thing you're told throughout season is family is your number one priority. Family is first, first always, right? So I took that, and I believe that. Uh, so I did. We got back on a Wednesday. I took that Thursday. I turned my phone off. I spent the entire time with my wife and kid. The entire day. Friday, while everybody was still off, I joined my selects. Uh, Then fast forward. We're doing our 
uniform fitting when we go and we get fitted for our new uniform, chief uniform, so on and so forth. And I get a call from the same person who has kept me with the CBs for so long. Because now that I've picked up chief, I fall under redistribution. Basically where, hey, you're chief here. We don't have a billet for you here. You got to go somewhere else. We don't have a job. We don't have a job for you. You got to go fill a job where we need you at. So I was kind of excited about it, but sad at the same time because I've been with the CBs for so long. And I love the CBs. But I was kind of, you know, you hear about people's naval career and they've been here, there, there. I've been to Japan, San Diego, Maine, short time in Virginia and Mississippi. I want to do something, see something else, right? Uh, he calls and says, hey, call your detailer. And I'm like, okay. So I get off the phone with him and I call my detailer. My detailer says... You're going to NCG2, Naval Construction Group 2. It's the same thing that 20th SRG was. They just changed their name. And I'm like, shit. Get off the phone with him, and I call that same Master Chief back that has had me in the CBs for so long. And I said, what did you do? I've known him since I was a sec- second class. So me, and he, he had the same first name as me. Love him to death. Hold him to high respect. This dude made Master Chief after being busted down twice. Made Master Chief in 13 years. Yeah, busted down is losing rank. Yeah. Because you get in trouble. Yeah. Been busted down twice from, from second class to third class. And still made Master Chief in 13 years. He was considered a godfather in the CVs. I've been with him every duty station. That's why I knew it was him that was always keeping me there. Uh, love, him, love him to death. Uh, still talk to him. Not as much as I would like to, but still talk to him on a regular basis. Anyway, he says, I need you at NCG2. And where's this at? In Gulfport? In Gulfport. Okay. And I told him, I said, if you're telling me you need me, I will go. So, I'm having a transition in the middle of the season. And one day, I checked out from NMCB11 and checked into NCG2. So, it went from knowing one mess... To having to get to know a whole other mess. Chief's mess. Chief's mess. This is season chiefs. Yes. Right. Having to start basically all over. It'd be like leaving a fraternity in yes. the middle of rushing. Yeah. And joining another fraternity in the middle of their rush. 100%. So uh, going through and an, an event took place that uh, like season had already just fucked me up. When I remember, so back in Guam... Uh, we were leaving, and then we were having our going away party at the beach. But I was still having to deal with Gulfport, Guam, Island stuff. I uh, having to do all this stuff, and I had—I was supposed to be on a phone call with Gulfport at a certain time. Well, during that same certain time was the time that we were doing our going away thing. And the chief's mess there in Guam had told me you better be at the beach event. Now, given nobody offered me a ride, <laughs> it's a long freaking walk right and i remember i'm in front of the chief's mess building in guam and i've got all these papers in my hand and they're all leaving in their trucks nobody's offering me a ride they got their snorkel gear and all that kind of stuff they're going they're like hey you better be there blah 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 and i literally walk 10 feet in each direction to the beach back up to get on the phone to the beach and back up to get on the phone eventually i just got so fed up that I just said, fuck it. And I threw everything in my hands up in the air. Just so indecisive on what decision was the right decision to make. 
But I went and I got on the phone. I didn't go to the beach. I got my ass beat for not going to the beach. Anyway, so back in Gulfport. The event comes up, um, and I go in, and uh, there's this master chief that's sitting there that just checked in while on deployment, so I haven't even met this dude, didn't even know anything about him or whatever. And then there's another master chief, and then there's my master chief, my big brother, sitting up there, and he's got my vessel and my charge book. And they bring me in, and they start charging me with, I haven't done anything wrong during season. Never got beat, whatever. My master chief, when I say my master chief, talk about my big brother, told me during season he wanted me to take a step back. Not to lead anything. To take a step back. So I did. Kept my nose clean. I helped support those that were leading events, whatever, whatever they needed. I supported to make sure that they were successful and that they didn't fail. We always failed, but still, I tried to do my part, right? So we're sitting up at this event, and they start bringing these charges of me being UA. And I'm like, you, I've never been UA. Unauthorized absence. Unauthorized absence, yes. <clears throat> and he brings up the time that I was gone, right? So I get mad. And I'm I'm not holding back my anger. And I said, wait a minute. I took one day to be with my family. And you had me up here for that shit? When we preach that family is number one priority? I said, that's fucking hypocritical. So they weren't affecting me with that. And then, then that same master chief that's charged me says, well, do you know who I am? And I said, fuck no, I don't know who you are. <laughs> I've never seen you before. I didn't know you existed. When were you born? I'll send you a birthday card, right? I, that's how pissed I am that they're trying to bring me up on some bullshit. <coughs> and it's not it's not affecting me. I'm getting mad. Well, my master chief opens up my charge book very slowly. He starts looking. He said, what did I task you with in Guam? Immediately, I shut up. Yeah. And I feel the tears coming. That's why I brought that question up. I thought, boy, he's going to catch some shit for this. Dad's disappointed, right? He brings that up, and, and I, I'm trying to hold it in. And a chief is sitting off to the back. And this this chief, too, I've known. I mean, CBs are a small community, right? And I've been there for so long. You knew everybody. And everybody gets to know you, your worth ethic, and, and everything like that. And they all knew my worth ethic. And this man says to me, Sean, when are you going to quit being fake? We all know you're fake. The minute you realize and acknowledge you're fake, the better off you're going to be. And that shit ate at my soul for an entire year. I had, I did. I had PTSD from season. I couldn't walk into a T-Smith without having an anxiety attack. Because I had known them. Since I was a second class. You know what I mean? Like, I, I did. And then uh, I finally did get my Master Chief's charge. Finally. Oh, I'll never forget. Uh, I took me and two other buddies during season to his house. He had us come over. And him and another uh, good old boy Master Chief, they're sitting there drinking Bud Lights and stuff like that. They offer us a beer or whatever. Well, we can't drink during season. He said... 
I'm Master Chief, what did I just tell you to do? So we listened. We obeyed, right? I'm not going to tell this man no to shit. <laughs> and he knew it. He knew that he had me completely wrapped around his finger. Because that's how much I loved and cherished this man, right? Still to this day. And uh, when you're going through season, you have a PQS, right? Uh, performance uh, qualification standard, right? And you have to do, right? And you have to get these signatures or whatever. And we were way behind in getting our signatures. But you can't finish season without having these PQS signatures. We're sitting down and he grabs our PQS and he's just one-lining entire pages and signing it, right? And I'm just, you can't do that. And he turns to me and just waves his hand and holds up his beer and says, you're four behind. I'm six in, you better catch up. And I'm like, shit. He knows that I would never tell him no. I'm telling you, if that man were to kill somebody and need help burying the body, he knows he can call me because I won't tell him no to help him. <laughs> right? He knows he's got me by the balls like that. And that would piss me off, too, that he knew it. Because he would use it. <laughs> he was truly your Z-Daddy. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Still to this day. Uh, and we, so we were doing PQS and charge book review at one of the events. And me and the two other guys were the only ones that had our entire PQS signed off. Because he had one-lined all these pages. And the season lead got up and said, this is bullshit. Who fucking blah, blah, blah. Well, the other two guys didn't stand up. Well, I stood up. Said it was my fault. And then he said, well, who signed this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, the person's name. I said, Master Chief such and such. Well, did you tell him not to do it? I said, yeah. Well, what did he say? And I said, he waved me off and told me that I was four behind in beers. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I had a circle around me and I was doing push-ups till my knuckles were bleeding. <laughs> And, when, and he wasn't there at that oh. event. So I went back and I told him. And he just laughed. Just laughed about it. Not an apology. Nothing. Just laughed about it. Right? Anyway, so back to that one event that did tell me I was fake. That shit really ate at me. And I started to really think, have I been fake? Am I fake this whole time? Well, a year later, 4th of July, my Master Chief has me and my wife and kids over. They're doing a big 4th of July thing at the lake or whatever. And we go. Um, and I got and the same dude told me I was fake that I had respected, you know, uh, and knew forever. He showed up and I just had enough liquid courage. Then I went up to him and I said, man, I've been meaning to talk to you all year. You know, I'm hiccuping. He knows I'm fucked up. Uh, I said, did you, did you mean what you said at that event, whatever? And he said, fuck no, but I knew it would get to you. And obviously it did. But season, and that's why, season is not the same for everybody. Being initiated is not the same for everybody. A charge doesn't mean the same uh, for everybody. But I took season to heart. You know, I knew I didn't get there by myself. There was people that my entire career had been molding me for this position, this, this rank and title. And, and the entire time I was going through season that first year, I felt like I was failing every single one of them. But it was at that moment that he said that to me 
that it truly clicked. And I'll tell you, uh, you said that being a chief is probably the, the best fraternity. I say it's the second. Freemasons is the first. All right, we're a lot. Freemasons are a lot older than the chief's mess. But I will say, being a chief, I love to the utmost. I love being a part of the mess. I love the brother, the brotherhood. Uh, I when I give a charge, I give, I give true meaning to the charge. Because the charge is what's going to help those that are struggling. You can always look back to your charge book and and go and, and be able to find some words of mentorship, some words of encouragement. When you feel like you're failing, reach through your charge book. Find those words that were left to you from chiefs of, of, of recent to the chiefs of old. You know, especially, you know, your retired goats that we have out there that have seen just about everything or experienced everything they're experienced when it comes to not your career, right? Navy's not a job. It's a lifestyle, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not even a career. It's a life. Like you're institutionalized to this and you, you fall in love with the people, the camaraderie, the connection you have. I can't go to a group of civilians and fit right in. I have nothing in common with them. They have not experienced or seen the stuff that we have, you know, but the chief's mess if I knew what I know now back then, I would have strived even more to join the mess sooner. And I know you're one of the most proudful chiefs that I've ever served with. And <clears throat> I love the cheese mess. I love being a chief. But you, you're on a different level. Like, it's, it's just ingrained in part of who you are. And I know <clears throat> we have a thousand more stories and a thousand more hours that we need to cover, but we're already an hour and a half into this. Holy cow. It's like time flies, right? Holy cow. There's one last story I want you to share before we leave, is how did you get your nickname Radar? Okay. Um, got the nickname Radar, so I'm huge into thru-hiking. If, if you don't know what thru-hiking is, it's basically where you go on a long-distance hike that takes multiple days to, to finish, whether it's a loop trail where you start and you end at the same spot, or it's a point-to-point -point where somebody drops you off at one point and you end at another point and somebody's picking you up. Well, I went with a uh, with another brother. It was not a chief. He got out as a second class. Um, and we were on a 43-mile hike. And the whole plan was, where it was, it was the Skyway Loop Trail in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Roll Tide. Um, well, he had bad knees. And we had done several hikes before. Like, we had started, our packs weighed 50 pounds because we brought everything in the kitchen sink. We had dwindled it down to where our packs weighed about 24 to 25 pounds. We're hiking. His knee started hurting him that, that, that first day. We camped out, awesome campsite right on top of a waterfall. Uh, we were hoping he was going to be fine the next day. Well, we still had 20-something miles to hike the following day. And <clears throat> we're hiking. He's, he's super slow. His knees are killing him. He's not going to make it the rest of the trip. And it's getting late. And we did not have enough supplies for a second night. We had done 20 miles a day previous. We thought we'd be okay. 20 miles, camp out 20 miles the next day. Uh, but his knees were just killing him. So we got to a, an actual park 
along the trail where people were at. Well, uh, nobody was there. And I was like, well, shit. He can't walk anymore. Like, I'm carrying his pack, and I've, I'm almost having a fire carry him. I'm freaking dying. Uh, so I'm like, hey, let's drop, let's drop our rucksacks here. I want you to stay here. I'm going to walk back to get the truck. So I was going to cut trail, get to the main road, and walk back, which is about 13 miles, right? Well, I get to walking, and I get walking up the the, tra- the the road to the park. I get to the main road, and it's out in the middle of freaking nowhere, right? Cell phone signal doesn't even freaking work. So I get to walking, and I hear a car pass, or a car coming up. And I said, I'm going to try it. Again, no ORM, safety training out the window. And I just happened to slowly throw my fist with the thumb sticking up out. And the car stops. Says, hey, do you need a ride? And I said, yes, please. My car is 12 miles up this road. And he said, I know exactly where you're at. I saw y'all, you and, and your buddy, camping out. I guess they had... They had walked, they had done half the, the journey, whatever. So it was this man and his wife and their two kids. So again, I just get in the car. <laughs> he knows where my truck is at. Like he hadn't seen it, but he knows where it's at. We get to go on. He says, So what do you, you know, what do you do? Whatever I told him, well, I'm in the Navy, so on and so forth. And and of course the kids get all interested and everything like that. He says, Well, what do you do in the Navy? I said, I work in supply. You know, you tell me you need something and I get it for you. And he says, uh, oh, you're radar. And I said, right, no, I don't deal with calm. He said, no, radar. And then it hit me. He was talking about radar from MASH, from oh, the show yeah. MASH. Uh, and I said, yeah, that's basically what I do. And he said, do you have a trail name? I knew what a trail name was. You can't give yourself one. It's not the same. It's the same as a call sign, yeah, right? Yeah. And I said, no. He says, your trail name is now radar. And I was like, you know, I like that. Radar. So that's how I got the name Radar. They dropped me off my truck. He opened up the back, said, you want a beer? I said, you're damn straight. It was the coldest and most thirst-quenching beer I'd ever had. It was great. But I drove all the way back. And I picked up my buddy, and I was like, hey, guess what? He said, what? I said, my name's Radar. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what? I s-. He's like, man, that was a quick trip. I said, I hitchhiked. He said, you did what? And they gave me a name. Yeah, he was a former Marine recon. You know, he's like, you did what? I said, yeah, I hitchhiked. That's how I got here so quick, and I got the name Radar. He said, what the hell happened? You were gone an hour and a half. Yeah. Life-changing. Life-changing. So Life it's all over your coffee mugs. That's why I 100%. Radar. Well, there's that and two bells. Yeah, I gave you two bells. You did give me two bells. Yeah. So for those that don't know... Uh, I'll just tell that story real quick. That was a pretty good one. Uh, <laughs> our old maintenance master chief asked me to be his bell ringer at his retirement ceremony, right? Uh, for those that know, you know, bell is very tradition of us. You know, we ring uh, people on board ship and then off board ship. Well, we do it during retirement ceremonies. And I was, I don't know why, but I was so freaking nervous. I don't know if it was I was nervous or I just was focused and dedicated to my job for him to be the ring or the bell ringer. And if it's what it's, if it's 
05 and below, it's two bells. 06 and above, get four bells. Well, people are coming through, and I'm giving everybody four bells. I'm ding, 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 ding. Which is a big deal because it's like only for high-ranking <laughs> yes. officials. Yeah, but the fact is, after the first time I did it, I realized I had, or the second time I did it, I realized I did it wrong because our buddy, who was the 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 the, the boatsman, you know, was there and he was looking at me and I realized, oh shit, I did it wrong. But nobody else seemed to notice. So I gave everybody four bells as they came through. <laughs> and from after that, you noticed, because I think you were the master of ceremonies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. You were like, hey, two bells. Shit <laughs> <laughs> off. And so I got the, the call sign of two bells. So yeah. I've got radar and two bells. I've got four different coffee cups. Two of them have radar, two of them have two bells on it. So. That's, that's my favorite part of the Navy is like the stories and the mess ups always seem to give you the nicknames that will stick with you forever. A hundred percent. But we'll leave it at that. Thank you for coming on, Sean. Thank you I, for having me. I appreciate it, man. You were the first episode. We're breaking the ice here. We'll keep this long tradition on and uh, we'll, we'll bring you on again. We'll talk to part two of Check. your journey in life. Sounds okay, good, man. Appreciate right. you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next good time. Good to be here.